0: Singing. I just want to talk to you for a second before we uh, get into some more music about uh, the fact that Christmas really began in an ordinary time, that this is a season that's really all about anticipation. Uh, families are anticipating what their Christmas is going to be like. There's been a lot of preparation made for this time of celebration, maybe You know, there's someone that you haven't seen for a while that's going to be coming in for Christmas this year, and so you're anticipating that. Of course, children are filled with anticipation. They're wondering uh, what they're going to get for Christmas. They're wondering where their parents have hidden the things they're going to get for Christmas. Maybe they know where their parents have hidden the things they're going to get for Christmas. Maybe they've already been in the attic or wherever that might be, looking under beds in places that they normally aren't looking. I hope I didn't just give away some secrets. But anyway, there's a lot of anticipation about Christmas. And there's always been anticipation about Christmas, even the first Christmas, even though it's hard for us to relate to that because we, uh, we don't really understand how things were in a different time in a different culture. But think about how exciting it is to uh, not just to receive a gift. That's exciting, but it's also very exciting to be able to give a gift. It's exciting to be able to spend some time and think about what might really be meaningful to somebody and to uh, get that thing and, and then give it to them. And even though you know what's in the package, even though you know ultimately what the gift is, there's still this excitement about watching someone you love open that package. So there's, there's this great anticipation in receiving and in, in giving. And that's sort of the situation that was going on in Israel when Jesus uh, first came for that first Christmas when He was born. There was a lot of anticipation in the sense that the people of Israel had been waiting for this coming Messiah for a long time. And so there was a lot of anticipation, although time had drug on and it sort of began to wane a little bit. I'm sure that uh, people were wondering, you know, well, is the Messiah going to come or not? But what about the anticipation in heaven? What about the anticipation of the Father as He had been planning this special moment in time for all of eternity that He's going to send His Son into the world and to be the Savior of the entire world. What a great anticipation that must have been. And from the giver's perspective, to to know exactly how things are going to go because He's God, but to still be excited about watching that first gift come and that ultimate gift be received by people that He loves so much. And so when we get to uh, the beginning of the the New Testament and the description in Matthew chapter 2 or Luke chapter 2 about the birth of Christ, sometimes what we don't realize is is that God had been speaking to His people for uh, thousands of years through prophets. But prior to the coming of Christ, there had been 400 years of silence. That between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament is just silence for four hundred years and so I think if ever there was a time when people sort of thought maybe if anyone was going to doubt that maybe the Messiah would ever come, probably doubt was at its all time high during that period of time because it'd been so long since they'd been able to since they'd heard from God since they uh, had any reason to think that The Messiah was right around the corner, but they knew what the prophets said. For example, they knew what the Bible said in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, they knew that prophecy. And there's dozens and dozens of prophecies just like that all throughout the Old Testament where God specifically and strategically said that there's going to come a Messiah, that you're going to receive a gift one day, and this is, this is the gift that you're going to receive, and this is how He's going to come, and this is the manner in which, and this is the place, and all the details were given, but at different times by different people. And so there was no way of knowing when that would happen. And so I'm assuming that during that 400 years of silence, it was probably a lot like, It is today in the sense that we as believers, we know that God has promised that His Son's coming back. But we get busy and distracted and life sort of begins to consume us sometimes and we forget. We don't wake up every morning and and think first thing in the morning that today might be the day that He comes back. And so this very first Christmas, it it came as a surprise, much like the return of Christ will come as a surprise, you see, because the people were traveling to Jerusalem to partake in the census. They were busy going about their lives, caring for their livestock and their families. They had all sorts of responsibilities. And life has a way of just sort of consuming us and, and taking charge of our emotions and our attention and all of our affections and so that's sort of the situation. And then one night one night while everyone slept I'm sure that night when everyone went to sleep, they thought it was just another night there but something special happened. That that was the time that God had prepared to send his son. And so unbeknownst to anyone But God, Jesus came forth. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1. As the angel is explaining to Joseph what's about to happen, the angel says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call His name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. So they're in a very ordinary time. That's what you have to understand, is that God sent His Son into an absolute, ordinary time and just interrupted the universe with the greatest gift that could ever be given. And though the anticipation must have been so great in heaven... Now, for us looking back, we can now relate to that anticipation as we are the recipients of this great gift. On that ordinary night, who did hope come to? There's so many parts about the Christmas story that just continue to amaze me and astound me as I think about it. I, I think about... <clears throat> Who do the angels go to first? If it's an ordinary time, of all things, the angels show up to an ordinary people. In Luke chapter 2, one of the places we find the Christmas story, really the most complete uh, Christmas story is in Luke chapter 2. Here's what the Scripture says, beginning in verse 8. Now there was in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now think about this with me for a second. The angels come to these shepherds. Now these shepherds are living out in the fields. These are not uh, your average run-of-the-mill shepherds who would uh, put their sheep up in the pen at the end of every day and then uh, go to their homes. These shepherds... Live in the field. And so think about what it would be like to live out in the fields and, and to be used to being out in the wilderness in the complete blackness of night. And I would just imagine that these men were probably not men who were easily frightened. They were people who were very accustomed to being outside, to being in the dark. Things didn't really uh, bother them uh, they were, that would normally bother us, most of us. Uh, get a little fearful when we're in the dark and feel comfort when the light comes. But when you're standing out in a field and you're used to being in the dark and you're perfectly at peace standing in the dark and then suddenly a light shines upon you from heaven, that rattles them. It scares them. And they're terrified. Now, it caused me to ask this question. Well, why are they terrified? Why would men who would normally not be terrified by much of anything, considering the fact that why are they out there at night watching these sheep to protect them from what? From wild animals. And so they're used to being outside at night, in the dark, in the elements, and fighting off wild animals that are trying to attack their sheep. And so these are some, I guess we could say, pretty tough guys who probably aren't afraid of much. So this light appears and they're terrified. And that caused me to think for a a minute. Well, why? And I began to think about how, isn't it true that one of the main themes in the Bible is that man is afraid of the light, that man's always been afraid of the light of the glory of God, at least since sin entered the world. If you remember back in the genesis account in the garden of eden adam and eve were created in in this perfect garden environment with god and they lived with god and the bible says that they fellowshiped with god and they walked with god in the cool of the day and so there was this 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 relationship between them and god and but then one day something changed one specific day adam and eve decided that they wanted to take charge of their own destiny they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be their own gods. And so they broke the one rule that God had given them to follow in this perfect environment. And what happened in that moment was fear set in. Because for the very first time, God then comes back to the garden and Adam and Eve are afraid. They're hiding from God. And so ever since that moment, the Bible shows how man is afraid of the light that we have been separated from God by our sin and when the glory of God shows up it it scares us and so on this particular night the glory of God shows up and just as if it would to any of us these men are afraid and so the bible goes on to say and then the angel says well, well don't be afraid well that's easy for you to say, you're not standing out in the middle of this dark uh, field and suddenly there's this strange light from heaven and this voice coming from heaven. It seems like uh, it would be an awfully terrifying moment and I'm sure their eyes hadn't dilated yet and they were still trying to sort out exactly what's going on and 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 yet listen to what is being Said to them from the heavens, "Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be with all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." So, in the midst of this terrifying moment, that sometimes when we uh, when we see it depicted in a children's play, it it seems so sweet and cuddly and innocent, but Really, it's a, it's a moment of terror. And these shepherds are utterly terrified, and for good reason, because they knew the prophecy, but they also knew that uh, they lived in a time when nobody could really ever know how they stood with God. I mean, there was no assurance of what, what was God going to do to me. What, what, am I okay with God? Is God okay with me? I mean, all they knew was that there was a there was a religious system, that in that system there was a system of sacrifice where animals would be sacrificed. But it, the Bible uses a word atonement. They knew atonement. What atonement means is it means to appease. You see. In the Old Testament, man could relate to God through atonement—that there could be a a momentary or a temporary reconciliation between man and God—but it wasn't permanent. There was nothing concrete, and so there was just an appeasement, and and until the time of a span of time had passed, and then there would need to be another offering or sacrifice to bring about appeasement. So God was was terrifying. To all men. But not just all men. What about these ordinary men? Of all the people on earth that God would come to first, these shepherds. Which is really astounding if you stop to think about it. Because what do we know about these shepherds? Well, we know the Bible says that they were living in the fields. So that's a, a different kind of shepherd. And most scholars believe that these shepherds were living in the field because they were keeping the sheep that were used in the temple as sacrifices. And so their job was to raise and protect and keep the sheep that would actually ultimately be sacrificed in the temple for the forgiveness or the atonement of the sins of the people. And so there they are, night and day, working their shifts, protecting these sheep that represented to them a constant reminder that really man is not okay with God and that there's sin that has to be dealt with and the reason that these sheep need to be protected and raised and nurtured is because they will ultimately be used for sacrifice because they knew as much as anybody knows that they were under the law that they couldn't they couldn't perfectly fulfill the law of God that there was no way to 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 live perfectly the way that uh, God called us to live if we were going to live perfectly. And so furthermore, these shepherds, because of their job, they would have been considered unclean. And so that would have prevented them from participating in the very worship in the very temple that they were raising the sheep to be sacrificed in. And I think it goes even deeper than that because I was started thinking about these shepherds. I started thinking about what would it have been like to be one of these shepherds, like for that to be my occupation. And so every day you go and you, you sort of watch over these sheep and every day these sheep remind you of your failures. They represent literally failure. And man's inability to live right according to God on his own. And I started to imagine, what, would it, what is it like for these, sh- for these shepherds when they, when they would go home to their families? Because I'm sure they had night shifts and day shifts. And so these shepherds who were out all night, they probably would go back to their families in the daytime and sleep all day, much like a shift worker would today. And they probably had husbands, I mean, wives and, and children. And so when they went home, I mean, I wonder how it was when their children asked questions about, well, Dad, you know, how was work today? What did you do at work? Or when their friends said, well, what does your dad do? Well, my dad is a shepherd out in the fields. Well, why? Well, what does he keep those sheep for? And so he would explain to his children, well, I keep the sheep because the sheep are for the sacrifice in the temple. And well, why do the sheep have to be sacrificed in the temple? Because we need to be atoned for our sin, that we sacrifice sheep to appease God. And so what I want you to see is that these ordinary shepherds, if there was anyone on the planet earth that knew that they were a failure, that knew that they had not done everything right, that knew that man was lacking in his relationship with God, it had to be these specific men considering their occupation and their position. And if anyone felt separated from God, it had to be them. And I just wondered, as I thought about this, I wondered how many people would be here this morning who just quite honestly, in the quietness of your heart, would say, you know, I feel like a failure a lot of times. I feel like I've I, I failed a lot. In fact, there's things in my life that constantly remind me of my failures. And so like these shepherds, I can relate to always being reminded of the places in my life where I've fallen short. And then that begins to make you feel separate from God because you feel like the failures that have happened in your life then prevent you from ever getting close to God. And so... Maybe you can relate to the fact that these shepherds were always reminded of their failures. A lot of us are always reminded of our failures. But the the words of the angel when they come to the shepherds, I mean, you have to really think closely about what the angels say. The angels say, for behold, I, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. You know if the if the angels wouldn't have said that this good news was coming to all people, I am certain that these shepherds if the angels would have said I'm bringing good news, good news from God, these shepherds would have thought wow, good news from God, but it's probably not for us. It's probably not for us because we're not we're not the religious Elite. We're not the people who have even remotely done things right. We're not the people who other people aspire to be like. We're the last people that anybody would ever think would be important to God. But the angel says to all people. And who does God send this word to? Not to the king. Not to those who thought they had it all figured out. Not to the one who had won all the, the character awards or was the most popular or famous, the most successful. No. To these ordinary people, these shepherds. And while all the important people, if, if you will, maybe in the eyes of the world, while all the religious elite slept peacefully in their bed, a light comes to these shepherds, the most ordinary of all people. So glorious Jesus who comes at this ordinary time to these ordinary people. What are, the other, what are the other characters in this Christmas story? There's the question of, well, where? Where would this, if we're going to come in an ordinary time to an ordinary people, where, where is this gift going to come? And that's where we get to this ordinary place the Bible says in, in Matthew chapter 2, as we're introduced to these wise men, that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people confuse this uh, story thinking that all of this took place simultaneously, but actually there's a uh, space of time by the time the, the wise men have shown up on the scene. Some... Weeks have passed at least. And so these wise men show up. And this very first sort of introduction to this piece of the, the, the Christmas story should cause you to scratch your head a little bit because God's obviously up to something just in the fact that you have these three sort of elements, these three groups of people, these three events in this opening verse that should really have nothing to do with each other, that don't belong together. I mean, you've got the this baby born in some town called Bethlehem, which is absolutely podunk nowhereville, if ever there was podunk nowhereville. I mean, Bethlehem was nothing. It was a tiny little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem that you know people would just pass through and say if you blink you're going to miss it that was sort of bethlehem and so there was a baby who was born but then there's this king herod who interestingly enough loved the the term king of the jews that's what he loved to call himself even though uh, he was king he wasn't jewish he was also joined by these wise men from the east who were probably astrologers who had traveled from the east. And so really there's these three elements that don't really belong together. Like what in the world could these three things have to do with each other? And the Bible goes on in verse 2 of Matthew 2 saying, Well, where is he, they say, who has been born king of the Jews? for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him now that's the title that herod likes and these wise men show up and they say where is this one born king of the jews and why are they how do they know that that this is the one person who's the king of the jews i mean how have all of these events brought these random people together well these wise men from the east they knew all the writings of the Old Testament, they knew all the prophecies about the Messiah and how the Messiah would come and when the Messiah would come, just like all the other Jewish people did. Well, they knew that as well, and they knew the prophecy from Numbers chapter 24, where the Bible says, I will see him, but not now. I will behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. That's another name for Israel, a scepter. So one held by a king shall rise out of Israel. So they knew that. And so when they saw this star, they knew that it was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So they come to Herod, who for all intents and purposes would be totally disconnected from this whole story except for the fact that he had a reputation to protect. He had a kingdom that he wanted to hang on to. He certainly didn't want uh, anyone coming along claiming the title of king of the Jews. That was his title. And so verse 3 says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That word troubled, this literally means shaken. He was rattled to the core. This was very, very bad news for him and all of Jerusalem with him. For they were afraid, again, because you have to understand, even all of Jerusalem was uncertain of their standing before God and they never really knew how God was going to react when God showed up and they knew the stories in the Old Testament where God showed up and things didn't go so well and so they they were afraid. And verse 4 says, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, it's interesting to me that Herod, the very one who's going to do everything in his power to stop Jesus and to eliminate Jesus, when he goes to the chief priests and the scribes, he doesn't refer to Him as the baby. He refers to Him as the Christ. See, Herod knows what's going on. He knows the prophecy. He's realizing that things are happening just the way the Bible had said they were going to happen. And so... So they say to Herod, Well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And verse 6 says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that is a direct quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. That's 700 years earlier Micah said those words. And the wise men know those words. The wise men have been waiting. And so they know that Bethlehem is the place. Herod probably knows that, but he asks the question because he just wants to be sure. And the wise men say, well, we're going to Bethlehem. Well, why in the world Bethlehem? I mean, if ever there was a place that was in the middle of nowhere, it's Bethlehem. If ever there was a place that would be the last place that you would think the greatest gift of all eternity would be given to mankind, it would be Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem, it means house of bread. Again, it just shows us something about God. In other words... I'm sure that you have memories of Christmas past when you, like me, have received a gift that was a very special gift that means a lot to you. Maybe you still have it. Maybe it's a memory that you will always cherish. And one of the reasons why you cherish it is not necessarily the gift itself, but also the fact that it represents... Uh, something that someone thought very deeply about who loved you and cared about you and took the time to get you something that you would use or enjoy or would be meaningful to you. It's not just a, a random gift. I mean, you can give someone a gift and maybe it costs a lot of money, but it's really impractical. And Or you can give them a gift that took a lot of time to create or to put together or to possess, but really it's not really useful. But When all the right things come together and somebody who loves you deeply gives you a gift that's very useful and special and shows that they they know you, what that gift does is it tells you something about the giver. It tells you about what how the giver feels about you. It shows that the giver didn't just give you something just because that was the thing that people customarily do at Christmas, but they went the extra mile. So what does this Ordinary time revealed to ordinary people in a very ordinary place tell us about the giver of this gift because it ought to really cause your mind to to think and to pause and to say God must be a God who really does love ordinary people, who really is all about the underdog, who really and truly wants all of mankind to know that He genuinely knows them and loves them and that He hasn't come for the special or the elite. He didn't, he didn't send His Son to the biggest city in the flashiest moment. It wasn't New Year's Eve in New York City as the ball was dropping that the Son of God appeared, but it was in a random time revealed to random people in the most remote and random place, Bethlehem. Our God is a marvelous God. He's a marvelous God simply by what we can discern about Him from these events of the Christmas story. Bethlehem, just a place that most of the world ignores. You know, I get to travel all over the world on mission trips and I get to meet people from every culture and uh, I love to do that. And on more than one occasion, I will be talking to somebody from another culture in another place and they'll ask me where I'm from and I always say from the United States. And then if they're uh, from a developed country, they usually have a pretty good understanding of the United States. And so they'll say where in the United States. And I'll say Mississippi. And I've had people look at me and say, Isn't that a river? (laughs) Well, yes, it's a river, but it's also a place. And then they will scratch their head for a minute and they'll go... Alabama? i say, no, no, no. Next to that, Louisiana? No, no, the other way. They've never met anybody from Mississippi. They they don't know anything about Mississippi. But it always makes me think that God sent His Son to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Maybe Orange Grove, Mississippi is a little bit like Bethlehem, God came in an ordinary time, revealed Himself to ordinary people in the most ordinary place. That's the God that we celebrate at Christmas. Now, we, are, if we think about, you know, just sitting there, by the way, watching those kids sing and listening to the choir lead us in song, you're going to get your chance to sing here in a few minutes. We're going to sing a few Christmas songs before we go home. I know you're just dying to get involved and to belt some out, so we're going to give you a chance to do that. But I just want us to sort of bring all of this together and to think about, so God has... Come at this ordinary time to these ordinary people in this ordinary place. Why? Why all the trouble? Why go to all of the extraordinary, excruciating trouble of uh, the Son of God leaving heaven and coming to earth and being born in, of all things, a manger and knowing full well that it would ultimately cost him his life? Why? Why? Why Christmas? Why all of this? And I think a lot of us can answer that question, but probably not completely. When we answer that question, we say, well, because Jesus came as the Savior of the world. Well, that's true. And what did He come to save us from? And some people would say, well, our sin. And yes, that's true. But it's more than that. It's more than we no longer are living under the law. It's it's more than we, unlike the shepherds, don't have to constantly live in the shadow of all of our failure. It's more than instead of atonement, we have forgiveness. The Bible uses terms like propitiation, which means the the payment of our debt, the utter and complete forgiveness of all of our sin. Yes, but why? Why? Why would God go to such great lengths to forgive our sin, if you will? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought, why is it so important to God that we would have an opportunity to have our sin forgiven? Why is that so meaningful to God? In fact, really, if you think about it, what is God's ultimate purpose in Restoring things back to the way they once were when we fully deserve everything that we've got. I mean, none of us in here are perfect. None of us have done everything right. And so clearly, God would be justified. He would be right and true and fair if He didn't forgive us of all of our sins. So why? Why is it so important to God that we be forgiven? Well, for that, I think we could look a lot of places. I think that one of the best places to look is the New Testament book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight. You see, you have to go all the way on the other side of the Christmas story. You have to go after Jesus has been born, after Jesus has lived the perfect life, after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus rose from the dead, after Jesus showed Himself to hundreds of people, after rising from the dead, after the church has begun to grow, and after Christianity has begun to spread all over the world, then you can get a right perspective on what exactly... God is doing. And why is it so important to God? And so here's what Galatians 4 says. But when the fullness of time had come, that ordinary time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The Bible says that Jesus was born under the law. That He came uh, having to, just like all of us, bear the weight of the law. And so, like the shepherds, he knew what it was to have the law hanging over his head. But the Bible says to redeem those who were under the law. That one, in order to free us from being under the penalty of the law, would have to be under the law with us and then fully fully obey the law, fully fulfill the law in order to redeem us. You see, not appease God, but redeem us. Redeem, meaning permanently, once and for all, pay our debt. And here's where Paul begins to go further and say, Why? Why is that so important to God? The Bible says that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, now you begin to see a glimpse into the heart of God, into the reason that Christmas is so spectacular. That God came for you and for me because his ultimate desire is not to forgive our sin, but to have a relationship with us. The adoption of us as sons and daughters. I have a lot of opportunity in my ministry to talk to both children who are being adopted, have been adopted, are seeking adoption, and people who are seeking to adopt. And I always find myself having the same conversation in those settings. I always find myself just beaming with joy and trying to get those I'm talking to to understand how beautiful and wonderful and spectacular adoption is. If you've ever had the opportunity to sit down and talk to a, a child who's been adopted, maybe, or just found out that they've been adopted or is seeking to be adopted, can you imagine what it's like when I, I tell them, I say, you know, how do you feel about being adopted. And of course, they're really uncertain about it. They're really unsure. And you see, they wish that it had been a different way. They wish that maybe they had grown up in a what we would consider normal family where a mom and a dad would have loved them and cared for them and been able to, to meet all their needs. But what I get the opportunity to do is to explain to them that, you know, I have children and I love my children, but I didn't get to pick my children. I had no choice in my children. They're just the children that I got. And I love them because they're my children, but kind of in a way I'm sort of stuck with them, kind of. <laughs> you see I didn't get to I didn't get to to know in advance how much food they would eat. I didn't get to know in advance what expensive tastes they would have. I didn't get to know whether they would, you know, be Uh, Clean and tidy children or messy and sloppy children. I didn't get to know any of those things. But when you're adopted, your parents get to choose you. They choose you. And that's what's so remarkable about adoption is that every person who's ever been adopted can say, I was chosen. Someone chose to love me already seeing who the me is. And that's amazing. And the Bible says that God was so determined to make a way for men and women and boys and girls to have forgiveness because He wanted to adopt us into His family. He wants a relationship with us. That really, the, if you say, well, well, Tony, what are you saying? What is the driving force in the heart of God? In the Christmas story, that's easy. It's intimacy. God desires intimacy with His creation. He loves you. It's not just some. We don't just tell these children that God loves them because we want them to believe that. We tell them that because it's true. Because Christmas proves that God loves them. Christmas proves that God loves you. Christmas proves that God wants a relationship with you. Therefore, He sent His Son that you might be forgiven, also that you might receive adoption as sons. But Paul goes on. You see, he's far enough away from the Christmas story to be able to see the fullness of everything that God accomplished. The next verse says, And because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, that cries out, Abba, Father. That what Paul knows, what I know, and what many of you in this room know, is that when you become a Christian, what happens is God puts His Spirit inside of us, the Spirit of His Son. And we're adopted into His family. We become His sons and His daughters. That He chose us, which is so amazing, because He didn't have to, but He does. He doesn't have to accept you, but He does. And so... I was 25 years old when I became a Christian. And I mean, how many of you would adopt a 25-year-old? There's probably some 25-year-olds in here that are interested in that if you're available. But you see, I mean, here's the thing. When you're 25, you're not cute and cuddly anymore. You're really of very little use. In fact, really, if you're all I brought to God was a big mess that I had made out of my life. But He adopted me because He wants a relationship with me And He put His Spirit inside of me that I could now cry out, Abba, Father. That word, Abba, that's not some weird rock group from the 70s. That's an Aramaic word that means Daddy. And the reason that it's translated in our Bibles, Abba, is because there's no English word, there was no Greek word to translate Daddy. We had the word for Father, the formal term that you would, you know, out of uh, reverence and respect that you would call your father, but there was no word for Daddy. And so, we just translated Abba. That God sent a Son at an ordinary time to ordinary people in the most ordinary place that we might have forgiveness of our sins, not atonement, but forgiveness forever. That He'd redeem us. Not just so that we could be forgiven, but so that He could adopt us into His family. Because He does genuinely Love us and that we would become his sons and daughters and we would be able to go to him and call him daddy. Is that not amazing? And then Paul ends in verse seven by saying, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Isn't that remarkable? And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ that we no longer relate to God as a slave that we're, we don't have to have that feeling towards God that the shepherds had. We don't have to to be worried that God is uh, displeased with us or He's coming to get us or that in some way when He shows up it's going to be a bad thing for us because we're His children and we can call Him Father. And so what did God do? He mended, He fixed everything that needed to be fixed. He brought us back to the relationship that we once had with Him in the garden before there was sin. That when our sin is forgiven, although we don't live in the perfection of Eden, we live on this broken world, that's sort of the rest of the story. But that we relate to Him the way we once were intended to. That we were created... Man and woman in relationship for relationship, and so you say to yourself, well, that's amazing that he he came and forgave our sin that we might be adopted into his family and because he loves us, but then why doesn't he just take us home because he has work to be accomplished here that you know what those shepherds did that that night after the angel came they they went and they Went to the manger and they saw Jesus, and the Bible says that they told everybody they came in contact with that the Messiah had come. And that thousands of years later, Christians still do the same thing. We go around and we tell people, guess what? The Messiah has come. And there's no better time to tell people, guess what? The Messiah has come than Christmas. Because Christmas represents proof positive. That our God is not an ordinary God. That He is anything but ordinary. And that the gift of Christmas is the most extraordinary gift that we could have ever dreamt of. And so I have a few thoughts as I close I want to share with you about Christmas. I think what all of this tells us and teaches us is that what I'm about to read and a thousand other things are true, but this is just... A small portion of what is true. Christmas tells us that Jesus came for those who look in the mirror and see ugliness. Jesus came for daughters whose father never told them that they're beautiful. Christmas reminds us that there are sons whose fathers keep giving them hunting gear when all they really want is art supplies. That Christmas is for those who go out and to a restaurant and and eat all alone. Christmas is for those whose lives have been wrecked by cancer. Christmas is for those who thoughts about this Christmas can never get past the fact that it might be your last. Christmas is for those who would be nothing but lonely if it wasn't for social media or their pets. Christmas is for those whose marriages have careened in a direction they never saw coming and are dangling, about to flip over the edge. Christmas is for the person who's addicted to cigarettes and can't quit even though they face a death sentence. Christmas is for those who look for love in all the wrong places. Christmas is for all of us whose lives are a daily reminder of failed dreams. Christmas is for those who have shamed their family name and wasted their inheritance and only want to go home, but they can't imagine a gracious reception. Christmas is for every mom and dad who are watching as their grown child's marriage falls into disarray. Christmas is a reminder that whoever you are in whatever situation you're in, whatever mess you feel like you've made of your life, Christmas is for you. Christmas is for you to know absolutely positively that God really does love you. You see, because on the other side of Christmas, looking back, we can see that because of all that Christ has done on the cross, the manger of all things becomes the most hopeful place in a universe that's wrecked with darkness and hopelessness. An ordinary time to an ordinary people in an ordinary place the most extraordinary gift. So what I want us to do at this time is just reflect on what we have heard. And I want us to reckon with these thoughts in our heart. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to have a a time where we just stand and it will help you to stand uh, and just sort of move around a little bit. What I'd like you to do is just bow your head and close your eyes and We're just going to have a moment where we pause, a moment where if you feel like you want to respond or come up to the altar and kneel and pray and thank God for your family, thank God for the gift of His Son, Jesus, thank God for uh, this time that we've had this morning. If there's some... Uh, commitment in your heart that you want to make today with the Lord. I'll be up here. The other pastors will be up here. You can just come up here. If there's something we can pray for you about some situation or circumstance, we'd love to do that. But we just want to all sort of just be still in this moment and, and just think about the reality of what Christmas really does mean. So will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me as I pray. Father, thank you for today. And Lord, before we sing some Christmas songs to you, Lord, before we end this wonderful morning that we've had together. Father, thank you for, thank you for the the preschool choir. Lord, thank you for the children. God, thank you for our youth. Thank you, Father, for those who lead us week in and week out in choir ministry. Lord, thank you for all the hard work and effort that they have put into making this possible. And Lord, we thank You for Jesus. And we thank You for reminding us today that He loves us and that You love us. And Lord, that You gave Him so that You can have a relationship with us. And Lord, I know that in a crowd this size, there is bound to be people who feel so distant from You, who are hurting and constantly reminded of all their failures and Father, I just pray that you'd work mightily in their heart, that right now that they would know that you're calling out to them, that you want a relationship with them too, and and that there's no better time to respond than right now to say, yes, God, I want a relationship with you. Maybe there's a, a husband who just wants to come and kneel at the altar and pray with his wife. Maybe there's a wife who just needs to come and kneel at the altar and And pray for a family member or a child or whatever the case may be, Lord. We just want to respond to you. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving Jesus to us, Lord, as our Savior. And thank you, Lord, for choosing us in adoption to be your children. So, God, we're just going to pause in this time and let you do what only you can do. So help us to just center our minds, our thoughts on you. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. We'll just stay heads bowed, eyes closed for a few moments. Those who want to come and respond, you come. We're here. We'll wait for you. If there's something on your heart, something we can pray for you, help you with, just make your way down, people will scoot out of the way. And we're here to love you and to care for you.